Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Halloween tricks. Last week, I took a look at the lighter side of Halloween in the form of a collage of sorts. And this week, it's the darker side. The most wild yet most homely narrative which I'm about to pen, I neither expect nor solicit belief. Mad indeed would I be to expect it, in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet mad am I not, and very surely do I not dream, but tomorrow I die, and today I would unburden my soul. My immediate purpose is to place before the world plainly, succulently, and without comment a series of mere household events. In their consequences, these events have terrified, have tortured, have destroyed me.
cyborgs don't feel pain. I do. Don't do that again. Just let me go. Listen and understand. That Terminator is out there. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop ever until you are dead. Inappropriate Conversations number 34 from October, back in the first year of the show. I did a show of Halloween and the music of dead musicians. It was my first look at this particular holiday, and as you can already tell, this year Inappropriate Conversations is diving right back into that material in a big way. Next week, I'll revisit that music of dead musicians idea, the the notion of how I would celebrate Halloween musically. But this week's more of a sound collage. Halloween tricks, as it were. And I'm starting off with a tribute to the different drummer of that earlier show in the very first year. Edgar Allan Poe was named different drummer that year, and in many ways, The Black Cat is my favorite short story by Poe. It may not be my favorite piece of his work. There may be poems that I actually like more. And even in the realm of short story, there are so many great ones to choose from that I could probably more honestly say that The Black Cat is my favorite first paragraph of any short story of Edgar Allan Poe, and I shared a piece of it here. That was followed by Black Cat by Janet Jackson off her Rhythm Nation album, and not necessarily a song I think of early on from a Halloween perspective. I don't find it to be particularly supernatural or frightening, but it did tie in directly to the Edgar Allan Poe introduction, so I went with it. Normally, when I think of Halloween music, I think of Ed, the Alan Parsons Project, which was what I used to follow up the Janet Jackson song. That is from the very first Alan Parsons album, Tales of Mystery and Imagination by Edgar Allan Poe. And their suite from that album called The Fall of the House of Usher, this was Movement 2, Arrival. Sound clips play a big role of what happens on my MP3 player. I probably have more than a hundred different movie and television show clips that when I hit shuffle can just randomly appear at any point in time. I ended up this introductory section with a little moment from the the original Terminator movie back in the mid-1980s, and there'll be more to come. In fact, here in just a minute, we're going to bring in an element of 2001 A Space Odyssey and mix that in with a few of my favorite songs. The first of those favorite songs is actually the theme to a television show that is kind of long forgotten. I mentioned it briefly when talking last week about Rod Serling as a different drummer and the credit he deserves not just for The Twilight Zone, but also for Night Gallery. Around the time the Night Gallery was on TV and doing reasonably well in ratings, there was another uh, hour-long show that would be somewhat of a precursor, a predictor, of the Friday the 13th TV series that was to come, or even maybe uh, Tales from the Crypt or other sort of shows. It came out in, I want to say 1973, 74, very early 70s with the first season being called Ghost Story and the second season being called Circle of Fear. This is the theme to Circle of Fear. way, Mr. Amer. The 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. 
we are all, by any practical definition of the words, foolproof and incapable of error.
I mentioned 2001, A Space Odyssey. There are a few clips mixed in there from that particular movie. And although I don't really consider 2001 to be a scary movie, it's actually probably three different, maybe four different films wrapped up into one. But certainly the entire give and take, the the the, uh, com- the battle sequences with Hal the computer do have that element of, of fear and, and uh, perhaps even a certain element of horror to them when it comes to uh, life and death struggle. For example, in the middle of all that was a couple of sound clips that I just think the world of. One of them, Skinny Puppy, the soul that creates. And it dawned on me that when I put together a collage of of harder core than thou music, for want of a better word, a clip show that I shared years ago, it was Inappropriate Conversations number 124, either in July or perhaps late June of 2013. That had an industrial music section to it, but it didn't include industrial music from Skinny Puppy, which is funny because that might actually be my favorite industrial rock band. Now, I'm not going to say that the soul that creates from that, uh, from that era is my favorite song by them, but certainly it was my favorite track from an album called Brap. B-R-A-P, part of their back-and-forth series, a collection of rarities, outtakes, uh, discarded ideas, or uh, remixes, reinterpretations of more popular songs. Brap was a two-CD set, and as I recall, really one of my favorite, probably my all-time favorite multimedia experience. Back then, this would be maybe late 80s, early 90s, you'd have an album come out where there'd be a a music CD, that was the... uh, how it was sold, the auspices of selling it. But those many times they would include a multimedia track, and the multimedia track would plug into your computer and give you a different experience. Sometimes that different experience was all marketing. It was music videos or biographies of the artists or things of that nature. But I would describe BRAP as being somewhat closer to a video game, not in the sense of playing something and leveling up and winning, but in the sense of there being sort of a, of a vir- virtual slash digital landscape that you could explore, and through exploring that landscape, you could run into live music performance or uh, video cuts. I mean, the music videos were in there. And from that perspective, BRAP was really pretty cool. I liked it a lot. And in fact, I liked the multimedia part maybe more than the CD slash music part of those particular discs. But of the ones that were music, the one I liked the best was The Soul That Creates. And if I were to recommend an artist based on just their music alone, the one that jumps out at me in terms of uh, of an unheralded work is Alice Cooper. We think of Alice Cooper either in terms of being theatrical hard rock in the 70s or quasi-wannabe pop metal in the 90s and beyond, maybe even late 80s and 90s. But there was an album that Alice Cooper put out in the early 1980s called Flush the Fashion. In fact, I think it might have been Flush the Fashion 79 or some something like that. And it was really Cooper's attempt to create a new wave album. That particular album has a lot of peaks. It is one of my favorite Alice Cooper albums, in part because I think it's one of the more unusual ones. And the highlight for me, at least one of the highlights for me, is his version of the song Clones, We're All Clones. TJ from the Brain Dead podcast, who sometimes appears on the Greetings from Nowhere podcast as well. And I had a uh, sort of a, a Facebook exchange a while back, not for Halloween, so it wasn't a year ago. It must have been just it came up randomly in the middle of the year of both of us having a great deal of affinity and being able to quote the lyrics from, if not that album, certainly this particular song. Think the world of Alice Cooper and Flush the Fashion is worth tracking down.
Hi there, this is Stu the Beard Perry entreating you to please listen to our show for those about to rock on simplysyndicated.com. Please listen to our show, please! Where we ended up with at the end of that section, though, was our different drummer music for this week. I'm going to set aside the different drummer this time with the music of the residents, and particularly a focus on one particular resident, maybe a guest artist resident, as a matter of fact, Molly Harvey. I've mentioned Harvey before. In that Harder Core Than Thou episode, I played a different version of, of another live performance of Golden Goat. That's the song that played us in for this different drummer segment. And I also played a version of Diane Terror. I'm going to have the original studio version to play us out in this different drummer segment. But I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Molly Harvey, and Harvey in particular in the context of The Residence. When I was talking about The Fall, uh, for uh, one of the previous different drummers, uh, Mark E. Smith, the leader of that group. Inappropriate Conversations, number 87, April of 2012. I'm quite sure, just going from memory, that I probably mentioned the the notion of The Fall bringing me back in. That is a band that is perhaps my favorite rock band of all time. Certainly the band that has the most music on my MP3 player. There still have been ebbs and flows and ups and downs in my relationship with the group. They'll always be among my favorites because of the work they've done in the past. But there are times with the just incredible amount of output of that band, the album a year rate they tend to be on, that there's going to be the occasional release that just doesn't really do it for me. And yet there are still these moments of time where they bring me back in. And the first time I can remember being having been a fan of The Fall, having begun to have that interest wane, and having them bring me right back in was I Am Curious Orange, released in 1989. And what was interesting about it was how theatrical the work was. It was the music that the band had done for, I believe, a Dutch ballet. What an interesting combination, right? A British alternative rock avant-garde type band collaborating with an avant-garde ballet choreographer to put the music together with the visual images that you would see live. And it is probably the ballet that would be the top of my list if I could travel back in time and see something at the moment of its original point of production. I bring it up only to talk about Molly Harvey, because my relationship with the residents has taken a similar turn, a band that I will always have a soft spot for, really if only for their commercial album. I mentioned the song Die in Terror. I'll have that ready in its entirety when this different drummer segment is over. Because early on in their career, uh, they were something I took notice of and paid a lot of attention to, and my interest waned a bit during the Mole trilogy. I imagine there may be a point, because I loved Eskimo, but there may be a point when I revisit the music of the Residents from the perspective of the Mole trilogy, which is actually has more than three parts. It's You just have to know the Residents to understand. But at some point in there, that interest waned, and what really picked it back up for me happened shortly after um, 9-11. It was late 2001, early 2002, probably 2002, when I took notice of Demon's Dance Alone. Now, it wasn't this particular resident's work on CD that got me. It was my curiosity about a DVD release and my decision to give them another try from the perspective of that DVD. And what did it? It wasn't so much the music, because the DVD was all new music. It wasn't like I was seeing a concert where there was a lot of throwbacks to previous works. No, what did it was the presence of a female resident. And I'm not sure I'd really heard Molly Harvey performing with the residents before. It was that moment that did it and really brought me right back in. Demon's Dance Alone remains my favorite album by the residents, and I'm sure I mentioned that when I talked about them 
as an anonymous collective musical group, as different drummers. No doubt, Inappropriate Conversations number 88, in May of 2012, mentioned Demon's Dance Alone, remaining as my favorite album. I might have even mentioned Harvey at the time. I'm quite sure, though, that I didn't give her justice, and that it's justified now to talk about her in isolation from the group. It's funny, though, because I really don't have much connection with Molly Harvey outside of the the band The Residents, and predominantly even Demon's Dance Alone as a recording. It's not the only work she's done with the group. She's also appeared on Gingerbread Man, which is another of my favorite Residents albums, Bad Day on the Midway, and that Bad Day on the Midway is a nice tie-in, because among her IMDb credits are the video game element of that particular Residents CD release, another video game, Space Bunnies Must Die, where she is credited as the primary cast member, appearing as Allison Huckster and Jocelyn Huckster in a video game from 1998 that I've never played, Space Bunnies Must Die. She's also appeared on a video done to promote the band Guar. And if you think about it, Guar and The Residents, despite being very different in terms of their musical genre, actually have more than just a little bit in common. So from that perspective, it's interesting. Harvey on Facebook, probably through The Residents' Facebook page, has shared some insight as to what it means to be perhaps one of the more one of the better-known members of the group. She still does, from time to time, perform live with them, definitely as recently as 2013, but maybe even since then. The post on Facebook says this, Molly Harvey is best known to audiences as one of the female voices in the residents' repertoire. She has appeared live and on record for many of the residents' projects, including Gingerbread Man, Bad Day on the Midway, Wormwood, Icky Flicks, Demons Dance Alone, Animal Lover, and The Way We Were. Quoting Harvey, A lot of what performers rely on is feedback they get after the show. It's nice when people clap, there's that immediate gratification, but it would always be so strange performing with the residents, because after the shows, you would put on your street clothes and go out and it would be like it never happened. It was almost like living a secret life. It's like, did that just happen? Because the nature of residents' performances heavily costumed, often face coverings. The band would, from time to time, appear on stage with giant eyeballs as sort of a head covering, a mask, if you will. And she would also wear full, you know, concealing masks in the songs that she would perform. I want to stop here for a minute. I'll pick up a little bit more of her biography, trying to broaden out to the degree that the internet will allow, more about who she is as a person and as a performer. But... The thing that really won me over for her, and it was almost instantaneous, it wasn't just that Demons Dance Alone, the DVD, led me to go find Demons Dance Alone, the CD. It was really this one particular performance. Because there's two things from Molly Harvey that I like the best in context of Demons Dance Alone. One of them is the song The Weatherman from the studio album. It is easily the most beautiful of all the residents' songs. And I know that's ironic to say. They're a band that is known for not being particularly beautiful musically, but it is among the more beautiful of their songs. But really, the one that got it for me was the theme running through Demon's Dance Alone. And this is sort of an, uh, an ironic post-9-11 look at the world, for want of a better word. Life Would Be Wonderful is a song sung by the traditional male vocalist of the residents a couple of times, both on the studio album and in this live performance. But it was only in the live performances that I think you can hear the female version of Life Would Be Wonderful. I've heard it described as Mrs. Wonderful, or in this case, from a live album recorded in Oslo, Norway, called Demonic, 
It's a live recording of the stage production of Demons Dance Alone, just called Wonderful 2.
found an article online called archive.wired.com, Table of Malcontents, written by John Brownlee, called How Molly Harvey Joined the Residence. And it may be the best way to give just a quick intro. He says this, I have long been a fan of the anonymous avant-garde rock band, The Residence. About ten years ago, I went to a Residence concert with my dad and discovered that The Residence had all of a sudden gotten a hell of a lot sexier with the sudden addition of a female resident shrilly screeching, God digs my daddy, on stage, in a day-glow bodysuit and a purple goblin mask. This girl resident actually isn't anonymous at all. She's Molly Harvey, an actress, singer, artist, and writer. Sometimes, most of the time, she is a grocery clerk, real estate title examiner, babysitter, or soda jerk. She's lucky, but not particularly ambitious. While looking over her website, I discovered that Molly has actually posted a story on how she came to join the group. As you might expect, it involves a dingy cafe, a smelly hippie, an adulterous policeman with hair plugs, and random moments of insanity that somehow ended up with her joining the world's greatest musical act. Here's what it says, actually, on, on something close to an official Molly Harvey web page. Desapress.com has an article called He Cuts Hog by Molly Harvey. It says this, A book on the works of writer, artist, and singer Molly Harvey, featuring her own pen and ink drawings and writings, including poetry, parodies, and short stories. He Cuts Hog. At Virginia Commonwealth University, Harvey studied the theater arts and in 1994 was discovered by San Francisco's legendary unknowns, The Residents. At nearly the same time, Harvey discovered her own untutored talent for rendering highly detailed pen and ink portraits. From the very first drawing to leave her pen, entitled Clive, West Virginia, 1954, it is striking how Harvey's style appeared fully formed. Her unconventional style and voice cohere throughout the nine years of work represented here. As a storyteller, Harvey is a master of subtext. Her language draws tension through its restraint, then surprises with flourishes of bawling humor. These stories tend to evoke the quiet disaster etched into the faces she draws, or they kindle some sort of gaping smile that precedes the only sound which can answer her quiet laughter. For those who know Harvey's sensibility as a singer and her gestural vocabulary on stage, there is certain resonance to be found with the gesture and manner of her illustrations. These are pitiable, familiar, disgusting, and terribly funny stories. They reveal their basis in real lives and actual events. Molly Harvey. So, Giving, getting a sense of what her range really is and, and an idea of why I would call her a different drummer. If there's a through line through all the different drummers I've ever named, it's that they're almost beyond category. Not just a singer, not just a performer, not just a stage performer, but also a writer and an illustrator and an artist. And also, as that one article mentioned, somebody who actually spends perhaps as much time doing what we might call clerical work. I think you can hear from the last moments in... Wonderful 2, or Mrs. Wonderful, or however you call the the female version of Life Would Be Wonderful, from the stage production of Demon's Dance Alone, that Harvey does an excellent job of bringing out the irony. If the father of the baby, that I know I'll never have, wasn't married to the lady whose house I cleaned when I was fat, life would be wonderful. There's a lot in common between this character created by Molly Harvey for the stage version of Demon's Dance Alone. The one I've got is called Demonic, but they've released others over the years. 
And that and the character created in the commercial album, early on in the resident's career, for the song called Die in Terror. If you can catch the lyrics, I think you'll see what I mean. trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist phantasm the delusion of a disordered mind a phantom a spirit a ghost for 10 years the secret of Paragord cemetery has remained a mystery now Three innocent people are about to discover the ultimate evil. You think that when you die, you go to heaven. You come to us. We've got to warn people. This summer, the ball is back. Phantasm 2. It's only a dream. It's a dream. No, it's not. Rated R. Don't try to frighten us with your sorcerer's ways, Lord Vader. Your sad devotion to that ancient religion has not helped you conjure up the stolen data tapes or given you clairvoyance enough to find the rebels' hidden fort. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Enough of this. Vader, release him. As you wish. <sighs>
That was my favorite line of dialogue from any one of the Star Wars movies. Certainly the six, and perhaps whatever is to come. I'm a big fan of the original, Star Wars 1977, whether it's called The New Hope or something else. And part of the reason I'm a big fan of it is I think that it does stand aside from the rest. The other films, the other five, if you will, follow a somewhat different, notably different narrative course. Note how in this one, the Darth Vader is subject to the command and control of the general character played by Peter Cushing. This isn't true in the rest of the movies. He is essentially either a free agent or absolutely and completely in charge. Before that, Phantasm, uh, both the theme from the original film and the trailer for Phantasm 2. I have a soft spot in my heart for Phantasm. I believe that Phantasm 2 in particular plays around with some of the ideas of Carl Jung and the phenomenology of the self. I may be the only person on the planet who sees this in these films, and I'm not going to say from any stretch of the imagination that the Phantasm movies are great movies, but my uh, my love for the films is such that, trust me, before we get too far down the line this year, maybe even in the very next inappropriate conversation, something about those movies is going to appear in the different drummer context, if nothing else, of inappropriate conversations. And then before that, a little clip from The Usual Suspects and Die in Terror, which is probably my favorite song by The Residents. <laughs> totally different. 
she hung from a tree, she watched him die. Who's gonna dance with Sally and who's gonna touch her trembling hand? When the fiddler takes the stand, who's gonna dance with Sally and The fiddler plays that tune Who's gonna dance with Sally Ann Who's gonna touch her trembling hand When the fiddler takes a stand Who's gonna dance with Sally Ann Sail away ladies, sail away Sail away ladies, sail away Who's gonna dance with Sally Ann? Who's gonna touch her trembling hand? When the fiddler takes a stand, who's gonna dance with Sally Ann? The group, or at least the group name, Dead When I Found Her, came out with an album in 2010 called Harm's Way. This was the first track from that album, and the first single that I received as a promotional single, simply called Curtains. And the first thing that occurred to me when I heard the song Curtains was how much it had in common with the music of Skinny Puppy. It was almost as if it was a more pop-oriented, somewhat cleaner musically version, American version, if you will, of Skinny Puppy. And of course, I found that very appealing. One of my favorite Skinny Puppy albums, in fact, probably my favorite, is Vivisex 6. And some of the ideas here that I find musically in Dead When I Found Her connect back to Texture and other tracks from Vivisex 6. After the Dead When I Found Her song, some moments from the movie The Shining, a track from Mark O'Connor, recorded under the group name The New Nashville Cats, a bluegrass ghost story called The Ballad of Sally Ann. That, of course, followed by a clip from Psycho and the theme from The X-Files. I can't decide whether I'm excited to hear what's next from The X-Files, whether there's going to be a new series or uh, another film or whatnot, because my experience of The X-Files was really somewhat limited. I've probably only seen a handful or so of episodes through all the years. Part of it was because the series appeared on Friday night at a time slot where I was usually busy. It's not that I was a social butterfly, but I was just engaged at the same time that the X-Files would have been showing. And when I finally got around to tracking down episodes after they'd been released, seeking them either on uh, VHS or DVD or in rerun syndication, the one that I found first was an episode called Home. Anybody who's familiar with the X-Files will know the uh, 
the seriously creepy nature of that particular episode. I can't speak for whether week in, week out, X-Files would have qualified as a horror TV show, or whether they were simply dealing with a Monster of the Week police procedural approach. But Home was definitely horror, and definitely horrifying. I'm going to wrap up this particular tricks edition of sound collages for Halloween with a mashup. And before I get to it, I'm going to let the mashup be the last thing that's sort of said on the episode. So I think maybe this is a good time for me to do a little bit of house cleaning before I introduce what I'm going to call the Gypsy Tracks. Because that song, Curtains, reminds me a little bit of a couple of movies, one I have seen, one I haven't. There was a TV movie from the 70s called And the Bones Came Together. And a similar plot line on the film Drag Me to Hell. And you have sort of a, uh, a sort of a fortune teller type character, whether, whether it be a witch or in the context of what I'm going to share at the end of the show, perhaps a gypsy. And not, not gypsy in the sense that I'm thinking of a particular ethnic group, but I'm thinking of a particular horror movie trope. That sort of uh, doomsaying fortune teller type. And I'm going to connect the dots there as we end the tricks section of Halloween this year. But first, if you'd like to put some dialogue into this or any inappropriate conversations um, conversation, I can be found at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. The website has comments enabled there. And uh, there's show notes usually for each one of the shows at inappropriateconversations.org. This applies both for the Inappropriate Conversations podcast and also for Walk the Earth. And each one of those two podcasts have a presence on Facebook. There's a Facebook page for Walk the Earth. There's also one for Inappropriate Conversations. You can listen to the show from the website or on iTunes or also via Stitcher at Stitcher Smart Radio. I'm also still working through the process of putting old sound clips up on SoundCloud to give people an audio hint as to what some of the oldest shows might be like. I started at the beginning, I've worked my way up, but I'm still in the 80s or 90s at this point in time. But those are ways that you can get in touch and interact with inappropriate conversations. I spent the last two weeks in a very different format than from normal, producing sound collages to celebrate Halloween this year. I'll have one more Halloween celebration, and then hopefully in the month of November, things will return fully back to normal, if there is such a thing. On the way out, as I thank you for listening, I've got a mashup of four different tracks, all directly related to Gypsy. There's The Gypsy by The Ink Spots, Gypsy by Uriah Heep, Gypsy's Tramps and Thieves, the famous share song, in this case a remake done by a group called Heavy Friends, but in a very familiar style. And finally, Gypsy by Black Sabbath from their Technical Ecstasy album, all kind of rolled together into one. And the last song, the last word I'm going to give today, being Black Sabbath, is a hint as to how I'm going to finish Halloween this year by visiting the music I would play if I were throwing a party to celebrate either the music of dead musicians or the music of what I'll call Halloween musicians. Thanks for listening. In a quaint caravan There's a lady they call The Gypsy She can look in the future And drive away all your fears Everything will come right 
If you only believe the gypsy She could tell at a glance That my heart was so full of tears She looked at my hand and told me My lover was always true And yet in my heart I knew, dear Somebody else was kissing you But I'll go there again Cause I want to believe the gypsy That my lover is true And will come back to me someday You see, she looked in my hand And told me That my baby would always be true
I am just a figment of your imagination. Hello, I'm Greg, host of a podcast called Inappropriate Conversations, with a mission to break down the barriers that keep people separated and stop us talking about politics, sex, and religion, and other aspects of our culture. And I'm ready to draw a line in the sand. If I have to qualify by some standard to be Christian in the eyes of my fellow believers over issues of theocracy or our current conservative mindset, you might just find me on the other side of that line. But let me tell you something. This doesn't say anything about my theology. It doesn't say anything about my orthodoxy. What it says is something about the state of Christianity today, that I, by some strange standard, may fail to qualify because of ideas that I have that line up with Jesus. Things like what Jesus had to say about public school prayer, what he didn't have to say about homosexuality, and what he demonstrated through his actions about the use of hormonal birth control. If my point of view about these issues makes me not a Christian, guess what? The term Christianity has become meaningless. You can find inappropriate conversations in iTunes in the News and Politics section or at www.inappropriateconversations.org. Thanks for listening. Music by Kevin McLeod.